Okay, so today I'm going to start a new series uh, on a topic everybody loves, stewardship. Now, inevitably, when a pastor stands up and says, we're going to spend some time talking about stewardship, people go, great, I know how many weeks I can skip church. Uh, because we think we're talking about money, we think we're talking about tithing, I'm not going to you know, force you or twist your arm into giving, we're not going to do that at all. I'm going to spend one day talking about uh, finances, but the rest of it is actually talking about stewardship. And it's a very misunderstood topic, because when we think about stewardship, the way the church had structured itself over the, over the centuries, we tend to focus on finances. And that's really not it. Finances are such a small piece of stewardship. Stewardship is an internal thing. It's something that happens on the inside of you. It's a way you look at the world and the things that are around you, the way you look at your resources and what God gives you. But not only your resources, you can see up here, your time, your talent, and your treasure. And it's important that we as Christians have a right outlook on all these things and that we steward what God gives us well. So a steward is simply one who is entrusted with the care of something for which they will be held accountable. And that is so important. If you give someone something, hey, will you take care of this for me? And you get it back and it's broke. Or you don't get it back because they destroyed it or they lost it or something happened to it. How many of you are really happy about that? Right? It's like giving your tools to your kids because they want to go fix something. You know you're going to find that tool a month later out in the yard, rusted. A steward is someone who not only has possession of something, but someone who will be held accountable for that which they possess. Probably the best example that I can give you from a Christian standpoint is the Bible itself. We have the full manifestation of God. We have the full understanding of God's character, his will, everything about him, what he expects of us, how we're supposed to live in this world that has been given to us to steward. And we will be held responsible for what he has given us. It's important that we know how to approach these things. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to begin by laying the groundwork for this series. I'm going to start off with a simple question. What is more important, what God gives us to work with or our attitude toward it? Which is more important, what God gives us to work with or our attitude towards it? So that, that, that's kind of a tricky thing because depending on what you get might change your attitude towards it, right? I think the answer actually should be obvious. It should be our attitude first, what God gives us and how we relate to it. You think about what this applies to our time. When God gives you opportunity to do something and our attitude towards it, that's your time. Lord, I do that thing, but you know, I mean... The masters are on. The masters were a little while ago, so I'm not worried about that. Or how about this? Lord, I'd go to that Bible study, but that's my favorite sitcom. It's poker night. It's this. It's, it's whatever. Lord, I want more of you, but I don't want it to interfere with the things I like in my life. 
Can you schedule all the stuff that can help me grow in my Christian life around my personal desires and likes? That would be great if you could do that. That would be awesome. So that's not what he does. I know more people who are looking for ways to grow in God who do everything they can to get out of it. If there's an opportunity, they're, they're, they're not there. Our material resources, that's pretty obvious. What are you going to do with what God gives you and how are you going to handle it? How about our relationships? You know your relationship is something you should steward? Not just friendships, marriages, right? Your children. Those are things that you will be held responsible for before God. And our abilities and our talents are things that we also have been given to steward. The idea of biblical stewardship is not as much an issue of what you do, and more an issue of who you are or who you allow God to shape you into being. It's amazing what can happen when someone has a willing spirit versus someone who just has a lot of talent. Now, growing up in the church, I've been in the church now for 28 years. I got saved on my 20th birthday. It's really easy for me to figure out how long I've known the Lord. And growing up in the Lord, I, was, I, was, I, I always had this view. I knew I was called to full-time ministry. I didn't know why, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know what that meant. So the only thing I could think of was get into a church and do anything that they need until I figure it out. So anytime the church had a need for something, it didn't make any difference what it was. I, I made sure that I, if I had the time, I, I was there and I was doing whatever needed to be done. Didn't matter if it was raking leaves, shoveling rocks, you know, wh- whatever. It didn't matter. Leading worship for Sunday school. I mean, I did that for a while. It was kind of cool. Through that time, I watched people who were more talented than me. Seriously, more talented than me by a long shot. Knew the Bible better than I did. And in my opinion, were better teachers. Get passed over. Because they were waiting for something significant enough to warrant their effort. And I was getting moved up. I never actually understood it until it was past. And you start looking back and you realize God was not after my talent. He was after the attitude. God can give you talent. He can activate an ability in your life. But he can't turn you into a better person. You are who you are. That's a choice we all have to make. So you think about this, are you grateful for what God has given you in your life and are you willing to do your best with it? Or does God have to meet a standard of provision in your life in order for you to want to serve him? That's a loaded question. You know, I'd be happy to, to do what I feel God is calling me in my, into in my life as long as I can live at this level. As long as things aren't too bad. I don't mind pastoring a church, I just don't want anyone to ever be mad at me. If you've ever had that thought, here's my answer. You're never going to pastor a church. (laughs) It's guaranteed. But that's the point. I think Billy Graham said once, after you, uh, when you're done preaching, if you haven't upset anybody, you probably needed to rethink your message. Our job as ministers of the gospel is not to walk through the world handing out candy. (laughs) It's to hand out truth. That truth is going to bump into your life at some point in time. So let me ask you this. If God right now dropped $100 million into your lap, poof. However, long lost Nigerian prince relative, 
trans, you know, wanted to transfer money into your account. Just, you, you know, it's great. $100 million, and, and, and God spoke to you and said, use this to help people. Would you be like, oh, yeah, I will. That's awesome. I get to take this and do this with it. Yay, Nigerian prince. Now, let me ask you something. If God dropped $100 into your lap and then spoke to you and said, use this to help people, are you just as excited? Or is that not enough? Think about this. Is that not enough to get your attention that God brought something to you and asked you to bless others with it? Does it have to be at a certain level to be worth our attention? Exactly. See, the word tells us that if we're faithful in the little things, then he knows we'll be faithful in the big things. And one of the reasons why big things don't come to people very often is because they're not faithful in the little things. We can't even arrange our week in a way where we can make it to church on time, go to a Bible study, call someone and ask them how they're doing, help a neighbor do something, move, whatever, pick something. We can't do it because we have other things that we want to do that are more valuable to us than what God is asking us to do. And then we wonder why the big thing that we believe God is calling us to never happens. That's why the word says, all are called, very few are chosen. Too many of us have spiritual answering machines, and when God calls, he gets a message. And that message is you're too busy for him. You see, stewardship is important, and it begins in the small things. So turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. I want to talk to you about the heart of a steward and how we find God's blessing in our life no matter what is going on. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that Old Testament spoiled little brat, the little princess, the little prince that could do no wrong, Joseph. People talk about Joseph and they're like, oh, he was second in command of Egypt. It was amazing. The stuff God did through his life, in his life. Let's go back to the beginning before the monster blessing and figure out who Joseph was and how God used him and why he got to where he was. In Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 8, it reads like this. This is the account of Jacob and his family when Joseph was 17 years old, because you know, all 17-year-olds are wise beyond their years and full of knowledge. He often tended his father's flock. He, wor- he worked for he worked for his half brothers and uh, the sons of his father's wives, Bilha and Zilpa. It's a great names. Looking for baby names. Here's another here's another couple of good examples. So there you go. Um. <laughs> but Joseph reported. And listen to this. Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Joseph was a snitch. Jacob loved Joseph because he always knew what was going on. No, I mean, Joseph, jo- Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. 
So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, because that doesn't upset any of the other children when one of them gets the special gift, right? A beautiful robe. But his brothers hated, hated Joseph, because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. So what did we just learn about Joseph? First, he was a jerk. He was the favorite little boy and he knew it. And he liked it. He had his little robe of many colors. He just wanted everyone to, did God, dad make you a robe? Nope. <laughs> he made me one. Want to know why? Because he likes me better than you. second thing we learned is that uh, no one was ever allowed to say anything bad against jacob's favorite little boy his little angel his superstar his little cherub joseph got an award just for getting out of bed i know it's hard it's so cold in the morning so if you think why is the bed so cold in the morning and so warm at, 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 at uh, so cold at night and so warm in the morning you can't get to sleep at night. You don't want to wake up in the morning. Why does that even happen? Your alarm goes off, you can go right back to bed. At least, I can. <laughs> his brothers did not have a slight dislike for him. His brothers hated his guts. To the point where they, you can read this for yourself in the rest of the, rest of the account, Joseph went out looking for them, and when they saw him in the distance, they said, I got an idea. Dad's not around. Let's kill him. We'll rub that, sh- that wonderfully colorful coat in some goat's blood or something, and we'll tell Dad that an animal tore him apart. Let's kill him. And basically, they went, let's do it. Now, Reuben actually had a conscience, and he said, uh, you know, I say it carefully. He had a conscience. He said, let's not kill him. Let's beat the crap out of him and then sell him. Because the last thing we want is to have blood on our hands. Because that would be wrong. (laughs) Instead, let's beat him to a pulp, throw him in an old well, and then sell him to some Egyptian traders, which is exactly what they did. Joseph is approaching his brothers thinking that he is the one bringing the word of daddy. And what he got was a fist to the face and sold into slavery by his own family. Huh. Now imagine yourself as Joseph. He gets sold into slavery. He's basically tied to a line of slaves. And it's estimated that from basically where they were uh, uh, up in Canaan down to Egypt took about a month walking to get there. And he's, in, he's, he's tied into a line of people. And then finally he gets sold to Potiphar. Within a month, literally, Joseph went from a prince to property. And he knew it. Everyone knew what slavery was back then. And it's a whole lot different than what we might think. Not only was he sold in a foreign country, he was sold to people who, in a language he didn't speak, who worshiped gods he didn't know. And they hated Israelites. They hated that nation. They knew who those people were. No one liked them. 
That hasn't changed much over the years, has it? Joseph is now property. He was the chosen one. And now he's property. Do you think Joseph could have had a grudge against God at that point? Because remember, there was an organized process of worship at that time. There were still priests of the Most High God. God didn't leave his people in limbo. There was a process of worship. There were temples. There were churches. There's nothing like we know today because, remember, nothing that we know about the, about the, the church and faith today existed. This was God speaking directly to his people. It was different, but God was still there. Do you think Joseph could have been mad at God? Why did you let this happen to me? I heard stories from my family about you, and and this is not how you're supposed to to work towards people. I was the the youngest. I was the favorite. I everyone dad loved me, and now look what you allowed to happen to me, God. You ever been there? God, I go to church. I try to volunteer. I try to do this stuff. Why is my life not better? How dare you, God, allow this to happen to me? Glad no one's ever been there. Other than maybe me. Everything in Joseph's life that he knew was gone except two things. He only had two things that he could keep with him. His character and his faith. So the only two things he could bring with him. Who he was on the inside and what he believed. Nothing else. He had nothing else. He didn't even have his coat of many colors because they tore it off of him, remember? And they brought it back to the dad, covered in blood, say, hey, he must have gotten eaten by something. Dad thought he was dead and in the belly of some lion. Meanwhile, he's in Egypt as a slave. But here's something that we want to remember. He may have only been 17, but think about the time frame he was at. Great, great grandpa, right? Great, great grandpa was Abraham. And grandpa was Isaac. We read about these guys in the past tense. For him, it was family. This was just who they were. Think about this. When Jacob was telling, (laughs) this is dad, when Jacob was telling them about God working through their family, these were not just mystery, you know, legends from long ago. This was my dad went through this. When he was talking about wrestling with God, remember the story, Jacob's wrestling with God, God touches his hip, dislocates his hip, and he walked away with a limp. Joseph heard the story and Jacob could end it with, and that's how I got my limp. These were not distant stories. These were things that happened to them. And the wives could be like, I was there. That's exactly what happened. This is how God worked through our family. These were not distant accounts of things that happened to other people. These were things that happened to his very family. So his faith was very, very grounded in a close tie with the movement of God in their life. That changes things. But we also need to remember that in this point in history, nothing that we would view as a guiding principle of our faith existed. Nothing. Think about this. No Ten Commandments at this point in time. No moral law. No Old Testament. It hadn't started yet. The guy that wrote the first five books of the Old Testament wasn't born. 
and wouldn't be for hundreds of years. Think about where they are. No law, no church, no temples, only the verbal history of how God had worked in the family handed down from generation to generation. That is a very different view on what we would call faith. God was literally just getting started with the nation of Israel. They hadn't even been to Egypt yet. Joseph was the first one sent. And funny thing is, in the Old Testament, Joseph is referred to as a type of Christ. If you think about this, Joseph was sent to prepare a place for God's people to be saved from the coming destruction. Isn't that interesting? The parallels that you can see there in his life and the hell he had to go through for that to happen. So when you look back at this point from biblical history, some of the accounts that we know would have been handed down to Joseph were these. He would have known about the fall of man. He would have known how sin separated us us from God, but that the promise that God made was for us to be made pure with him again. He would know about how sin separated us from God, and he would know that God was making a way for us to come back to him. He would have known about God's judgment of the world in a terrible flood, which wasn't that long ago compared to where he is. He may have still seen some of the actual remnants. It's very possible that at some point in time in his life, he could have walked by uh, uh, Ararat and someone said, and that's the ark. That's how soon these things were. We've got to remember where we are in history. The vineyard that Noah planted when, when he stepped out of the ark, he could have actually visited that location. I mean, these are amazing things. He would have known that the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah led to their destruction because great-great-grandpa told him about the story of going to get, you know, his brother Lot. His own father had made some very serious mistakes. He lied. He took things that weren't his, and he was seriously mistreated by his own family. But even though all that had happened to him, he knew that his father worked very hard at whatever was put in front of him, and God blessed his father's efforts, and eventually, even though the family mistreated him horribly, great blessing was brought onto him. I have a feeling that some of these lessons came in very handy where he found himself at that point in time. Imagine his first job as a slave and the conversation that may have ha- happened in his mind. You imagine, okay, Joseph, okay, okay, okay. This is where you are, and there's nothing you can do about it. He owns you. Imagine having that conversation in your mind. You were a prince a month ago. Okay, he owns you. You have to do everything that he he says, and you have to honor God at the same time. Remember what dad told you about being mistreated by his family and how he worked really hard and how God eventually blessed him. So if I do the same thing, if I can follow in dad's footsteps, then God will see it and God will bless it. Genesis chapter 39, verses two through four, read like this. Two through eight, I'm sorry. It says, one night Joseph had a dream. Oh, no, wait a minute. ha, <laughs> Oh, I forgot to put this verse in here. I'll just read it. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did. As he served in the home of his Egyptian master, master, Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph. 
giving him success in everything that he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything that he owned. Does this sound someone like who let his circumstances control him? Or does this sound like someone who took control of his circumstances? This is someone who took control of his circumstances. He did not let his situation define him. And we do this all the time. I can't, I can't be successful. Do you know where I was born? Do you know the type of family that I was born into? I don't have success in my blood. This is ridiculous. In my family, I'm talking extended family. I was the first one to go to college. I didn't actually know that until it was happening. Actually, let me, let me rephrase that. Go and complete it. The week before I went, this is not to dishonor anything. This is not, I'm not speaking bad about my mom. I'm simply telling you what she told me. This has changed, by the way. I'm getting ready to go, and there were some financial issues. And I said, I don't care how much I have to borrow. I'm going. So I borrowed, I took out some more student loans. I was going. But what she said was, you should just stop and don't worry about college. The grays aren't college people. Did you hear that? We don't have that kind of life. We are these type of people. I had a choice at that moment to agree and settle for whatever was going to happen or push and not allow my circumstances to define me. I said, no, that is not, that is not who I am. I know who I want to be, and this is the path, and I'm going. And I went. Took me 10 years to pay off those stupid student loans, but I did. It's one of the best decisions that I'd ever made. Now you think about this. Joseph was not where he wanted to be. He was not doing what he wanted to be doing. but he worked at the best of his ability. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do or say, do it as a, rep- as a representative of the Lord, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do or say, do it as though you are representing the Lord Jesus, which means put everything you have into everything you do. Now think about this. What, have you ever thought about this? Pastor, what if I do work really hard? What if I do do the best thing and it still doesn't happen? It doesn't matter how hard I work. It still doesn't happen. It's not fair. Well, very interesting. Joseph had the same thing happen to him. Genesis 39, seven through nine says, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Apparently Joseph was cute. Keep in mind, there was no moral law at this point. And it was very common for slave owners to use their slaves in this way, okay? Very common. 
This was not out of the realm of being okay in this society. She said, come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one has more authority than I do, and he has held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? Listen to this. It would be a great sin against God. No law, no Ten Commandments, nothing. He still understood that this was a sin before God. Not just something wrong in the household. It was a sin before God. He refused to compromise the character of himself, the integrity of his faith, even to a pagan woman who wouldn't have cared anyway. It was about his integrity before God. That's what he was protecting. And when he did that, that didn't go over well with Mrs. Potiphar. Joseph runs out of the building. No. And she decides, I'm going to get him. So she decides to accuse him of rape. Help, help, this Hebrew is trying to rape me. Now, here's the funny thing. No one believed her. Now, you read the account, you're like, but Joseph ended up in jail. I want you to think about this. This is Egypt, way back at that point in time. You got a Hebrew who everyone thought was scum being accused of trying to rape a nobleman's wife, and he ends up in a royal jail. Does that sound right to you? No, the only thing people like that get was the sharp end of a sword. You're simply killed. Even Most historians agree even Potiphar didn't believe her. So he sent him off. He did the very least he could do. I've got to put you in jail, but I'm sending you to a royal jail. Hope everything goes well. That's basically what happened. It lets you know that everyone knew the lady was lying, but she was a royal, just like a little princess. You couldn't accuse her of lying to, to favor a Hebrew slave. But no matter how you look at it, here we go again. He worked his way up. God was blessing him. Everything was great. One lie took all that out. Starts over from zero again. Do you think he had the ability to, to or, the, or the, 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 uh, the capability or the, the, the reasons to look at God and say, God, how could you let this happen to me again? I worked hard. I didn't complain. I served my master. I made him, I made him wealthy. I organized his home and this trollop lies about me. And I'm in jail again. I'm in jail. I'm right back at the beginning. But you see, that's not what he did. And you can tell that's not what he did because of what happened next. I think the thought in his mind was something more like, God, I'm here because I stood for you, for your morality, and for your principles, and I know you're with me no matter what. I think that was his mindset. And once again, you find someone who refuses to allow his circumstances to define him. He's going to define himself within his circumstances. He got to work. He got to work and God blessed him again. 
for his attitude. In a very short period of time, Joseph ends up running the prison as an inmate. (laughs) The only thing he couldn't do was free himself. How annoying is that? He was there for quite some time, and eventually, Pharaoh had a prophetic dream. And he had a prophetic dream that no one in his court could interpret. Now, you have to remember, at this point in time, Pharaoh is believed to be God on earth. To the Egyptians, Pharaoh, if you were Pharaoh, you were a God on earth. So when you were given a prophetic dream, it was very important for your magicians and sorcerers to be able to sort that dream out and to interpret that dream for you. It was very important to the Egyptian people. No one could interpret the dream. Now, for our purposes, I'm not really interested in the interpretation of the dream. Maybe we'll look at that another time. I'm interested in Joseph's answer to Pharaoh. Check this out. It says, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once because Joseph was known for interpreting dreams. And he was quickly brought from the prison after he shaved and changed his clothes because he can't go before Pharaoh dirty. He went in and stood before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night and no one here can tell me what it means. But I have heard that when you hear a dream, now listen to his words, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph's answer, it is beyond my power to do this. Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Most people don't realize this, but that was a complete slap in the face to Egyptian religious beliefs. They understood who the God of the Hebrews were. And basically, in a very short period of time, what Joseph said was, yeah, you've had a bad dream. That dream basically came from my God, not yours. And by the way, I don't have the power, but my God is so much more powerful than anything that you could possibly worship. He will give me the interpretation to put you at ease. It's essentially what he was saying. In the most humble way possible. I love it. I cannot, but my God can. Imagine if we, just a side note, imagine if we approach the gifts of the Spirit in that way. Can you pray, and he, can you pray for me for healing? I cannot heal you, but my God can. Can you bring me a word? I really need a word from God right now. I cannot bring you a word, but my God can. Wouldn't it be amazing if we approach the power of God in this way in our modern day lives? Now check this out. Genesis 41, 25 through 33. Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin scrawny cows came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it. For God, he's talking about his God. My God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt. But afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that the memory of God's uh, of the good years will be erased. As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been decided by God. There is no ambiguity. This is going to happen, and he will soon make them happen. Therefore, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. 
I love that Joseph drops a help wanted ad right there in the end. You know? You need someone wise, like someone who can interpret dreams that nobody else can. Someone with a great smile. God blessed him and made him second in command over all of Egypt. And he put him in the perfect position to save not only his people, but the entire nation of Egypt, thousands of other people throughout the land who benefited from the food he stored up during the years of plenty. This was an amazing life. Joseph was in captivity for 13 years. 13 years as property and prisoner. Doing everything he can to honor God in every decision that he was making. He was being put in charge of things he didn't want to run. He was in a nation he didn't even like. Serving people that he, were, he knew were godless, immoral people. But he was not doing it for them. He was doing it for him. Because it's his integrity before God that mattered. That's why God blessed him. Because no matter what the circumstances were, whatever God placed in front of him, he was going to do his absolute best with that. It didn't matter if it was $100 or $100 million. If it didn't matter if it was feeding the pigs for Potiphar or running the house for Potiphar. It didn't matter if it was scrubbing the bathrooms in the prison or running the whole prison to which he was a captive to. He still did his absolute best. He didn't put himself in places of honor, even though he could. You think about this. In the prison, he didn't even give himself better clothes or better sanitary uh, 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 situations. Before he went to see Pharaoh, he had to be bathed and shaven and put on something presentable. He was running the prison. He could have made it easier for himself. He didn't take advantage of it for himself. He simply did the best job he could with what was placed in front of him. How many of us can say the same thing? Even in our hourly jobs or whatever you do during the week, can we say that? See, we want God to bless us in these processes. We want God to move us forward. We want God to give us this this marriage. We want God to give us this career. We want God to give us X, Y, and Z. But we forget that none of that is available if we don't take care of what is right in front of us. That's what matters right now. The first calling of a godly steward is to honor God with whatever has been put in front of them, no matter the circumstance. Fair, unfair, good, plenty, doesn't matter. Honor God with what's in front of you. You may not be where you want to be, and honestly, most of us are not. You may not have the life that you've always wanted. Most of us don't, especially early in life. You may have had a hard upbringing, a difficult childhood, a difficult adulthood, a difficult marriage. Pick. It doesn't matter. Change and blessing will never come your way. 
you are only focused on what you don't have. The only thing that we truly have control over in our lives is what we do right now, today, with what we have. You want God to bless your tomorrows. Honor him today with your time, your talent, and your treasure. That's the first step in godly stewardship. Joseph had every reason to give up. He had every opportunity to choose a different path. He didn't. He chose to follow the path of God. And that's our choice. So I would leave you guys with this question. What do you have right now? What are you doing with it? What is your life right now? And what are you doing with it? Do you know where you, where you think God wants you to go? If you do, then what are you doing with what God has already given you to where he's already brought you? Stop complaining about not being there and start being thankful up here and in here for where you are right now. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, there's something there for you. Find it. And then let God open the door to the next step of your life. Amen. Amen.